All right. If you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. Last week we started a, um, a short series that will kind of give us a, a little bit of a break from going through um, the Gospel of John, and before we dive into our Summer in the Psalms, um, picking back up in Psalm 18, but we wanted to take just a few weeks to um, kind of refocus ourselves to the mission that God has called us to as New City. And, and that mission is always been primarily to glorify God in everything we do. Um, but for much of our time, we had a mission statement that was pretty long and complex and, and, and kind of hard to grasp. So if you remember last week, we talked about the fact that we felt that God had kind of led us to refocus some things and to clarify that. And our mission is now to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel, in community, and on mission. Last week, we looked at the gospel. We're, we're going to spend these weeks looking at the different aspects of our mission statement and, and clarifying why they are there, what they're there for. Um, last week, we looked at the gospel. This week, we're going to spend our time looking at community, biblical community. And to do that, I want to kind of give a quick background that before Jesus' death, he had informed his disciples that he was going to be leaving. And as he began to clarify the details of that, they became extremely distraught, very distressed. They had given their lives to follow him. They had surrendered everything on the pursuit of being the disciples of Jesus. And so he encouraged them in the last several chapters of John that their work was not going to be in vain that the reason he was leaving was to go prepare a place for them, that for those who surrender to him, trust in him, Jesus, for salvation, that heaven would be their eternal home. But he also said that in his leaving, he was not leaving them completely alone while they would be here, but that he was sending a helper, that he was sending help for them. And in Acts chapter 1, in some of Jesus' last words before he ascends back into heaven, he tells his disciples this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Not long after that, Jesus ascends back into heaven and the disciples get to work. And in Acts chapter 2, we have seen where people from different regions, different parts of the area had gathered together um, for one of their typical feasts, uh, festivals. And at Pentecost, Peter stands up to preach. Now, a little bit more backstory. For those of you who have been here for a bit and, and have journeyed through the Gospel of John as we ended it up, you know how big of a deal this is for Peter. That Peter had denied Christ, he had messed up time and time again, but that Jesus had restored Peter and he had been gracious to Peter 
which is really good news for all of us because we have, in essence, at some point in our life denied Jesus as well. We have turned our backs from Him. We have been unfaithful at times. We have made plenty of mistakes. But God graciously restores His people. And here in Acts, as kind of the the preacher of the bunch, Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and he begins to preach him. And it's not preaching like I'm doing right now because everybody in here, in essence, is somewhat the same. We're all from Alma or around Alma. We all speak fairly much the same language. If you're not from around Alma or from the south, you might not speak southern, but we all speak pretty much the same language. We understand each other. But Peter is preaching to people from different languages, different tribes, different backgrounds. And as he's preaching the gospel of Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowers him. And all of a sudden, all of these people, regardless of what language they speak, regardless of where they're from, they're understanding the good news of Jesus. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit in Peter and in his preaching, it says that 3,000 people get saved and then they are baptized. Verse 41 of chapter 2. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And that's where we will pick it up today, looking at biblical community. And the big idea for the text we will be in, which is verses 42 and following, is this. That when devoted Christians live in biblical community, people get saved. I want to pray for us and we will begin to unpack verses 42 and following together as we see what biblical community is and why it is part of who we are. Let's pray. Our Father, we once again come to you in prayer asking you that through your Holy Spirit, and through your word. You will change us. Because the truth of the matter is, Father, we all in here today need some type of transformation in our lives. Some of us here have never truly trusted in the good news of Jesus. We've never surrendered our lives to the saving work of Jesus That we are sinners and that Jesus and Jesus alone can save us from sin. And so for those, we ask that you will bring change, transformation. That you will open those eyes, those hearts to the truth and the reality of the good news that Jesus saves. Some of us in here are Christians. We have surrendered our lives to Jesus, but we just have kind of plateaued and, and, and gotten stagnant in our walk. For some reason, we have lost sight of the glories of salvation. We have forgotten our first love. And so we need a change, a transformation to be reignited in our faith, to walk and pursue you passionately. For some of us, we may be going through a difficult season in life where we may want to question God, will you bring change and transformation to those as well? To see that even though we follow you, the road's not promised to be easy. 
but that it can be filled with joy as we trust and rely on you above all things. Some of us may have it great right now. We have nothing to complain about. Life is good. But in the goodness of that life, maybe we've lost sight that the pleasures of this world are not the thing that gives us true joy and happiness. So bring change and transformation to our hearts to to rejoice in the goodness that you have shown to us and to give thanks. But to change our perspectives a little. Maybe some of us here today have grown apart from the body, from true community. Maybe getting out of the routine of gathering consistently with brothers and sisters of the faith has led us to kind of have a maybe a cold heart towards our brothers and our sisters. Maybe it's kind of given us this feeling of not wanting to gather together, not wanting to lay ourselves down for the good of others. God, will you bring change and transformation to those as well? That we would see you and glory in you. That we would trust you with our complete lives. That our faith would be reinvigorated. That our lives would be set ablaze for the mission that you have set each and every one of us to. And God, may that happen through the reading of your word and through the work of your spirit. May you bring encouragement. May you also bring us to the realization that we need to to repent of some stuff. May you grow us all together under the name of Jesus to be one family pressing forward arm in arm for the glory and the mission of our God. So may you bless the reading of your word this morning and honor yourself through our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 2, the latter part that we're going to be looking at today is not an unfamiliar text to most of you. It's not an unfamiliar text to hear at New City Church. We have looked at it multiple times throughout the last almost nine years. But it's just one of those texts that needs to be revisited time and time again as it speaks to the true church, the first church, and how it steers us to be the people that God has called us to be. And as Peter has preached and as God has graciously added to their number, 
3,000 souls. Now, that's a big deal, right? Because at this point, the church was about 120 people. There were about 120 confessing Christians working together. And in one sermon, the church grows exponentially because of the work of God. And the very first thing we see as we begin to look at this text is that these Christians and the ones who were just saved and the ones who were already there, the 3,120 of them, they're devoted. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, it's, now we've all seen these like massive evangelism events where we, you know, I see that hand, I see that hand, but... And we say, hey, man, we have just seen X number of people come to faith in Christ, but we don't really know because the fruit doesn't always show that, right? But it's pretty clear here that these 3,000 people are genuinely saved because of why? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. We've all seen people who have made a confession of faith in Christ, but, but their lives are not really altered, Maybe they are for a season, but it's not long, and then we're right back to the same old patterns. But I can assure you that if someone hasn't truly confessed in Christ, they're not getting devoted to Him, right? Because being devoted to Christ is a hard task. It's not easy to to say, I believe in Christ and I'm going to surrender my life to Christ because, as we just prayed, we know that following Christ can bring many hardships, Regardless of what you're going to hear um, across many mainstream places, following Christ is not easy. It's not necessarily about health, wealth, and prosperity. It doesn't mean come follow Christ and all of your wildest dreams are going to come true. No, probably your life is going to get drastically harder. You're going to face greater trials. Why? Because the enemy doesn't want us to passionately pursue Christ. And if he can do anything and will do everything within his power to destroy our faith, he will try. There's no threat to him if everything is golden and everything is going well in our lives and we forget that it's all coming from God. And so for people to be devoted shows that there has been truly a work of God in their lives. After they get saved, they devote themselves. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, they, they fed on the word of God. They didn't have the Bible quite like we have it today, but they had the scrolls. They had the teaching of the apostles. They had portions of Scripture, and they devoted themselves to the word. The word was everything to them. It meant a lot. I can assure you they wouldn't have been overly casual with the word like many of us probably are today. Even in my own life, there are days where I just get busy and I just don't get around to reading the word. And you can probably attest to this, that when we get into that pattern, it's a lot easier to not read than it is to make that time to study. 
but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They, they were feasting on the word. They were also devoted to fellowship. They were gathering together. Now, this, is, these, this, this specific part is speaking to the worship gathering. They were, they were gathering together in worship, but they were also gathering together in life. And we'll see that as we work through here. They were gathering together with their faith family, and it was crucial for them. They, they wanted to be with their brothers and sisters. They needed to be with their brothers and sisters. Again, why? Because this was a very difficult season for them. They were greatly outnumbered by the rest of the world. And gathering together with their brothers and sisters was foundational for them. Their faith family relationships, their, their church members, if you will, were their primary relationships. They weren't secondary. This, this was the people they did life with. They needed each other. For those of you who are visiting with us, I, our folks know this, but we have a sticker on our bathroom window that has been there for four years now that we got from an event that we were going to attend, and we just left it up there because it, it's a good reminder. It simply says that we need one another to carry out the mission of God. We desperately need each other. Christians need each other to live faithfully to the mission of God. We can't do it alone, and we're not meant to do it alone. We need each other. They were also devoted to the breaking of bread. And again, in the worship context, we see that this is talking about the Lord's Supper. They were faithfully doing what Paul commands in 1 Corinthians 11, that they would proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, that they were daily, weekly remembering the sacrifice that Jesus had made on their behalf. And so the Lord's Supper wasn't just some flippant thing for them. It was vitally important. When we first started New City, it was always our aim to get to a point where we could take communion weekly. And it was kind of a gradual process because most of us are not used to that. In the context I grew up in, it was about once a quarter, you know. And it was typically a Sunday night, so it wasn't really a huge deal. It was just we had to get it in there, right? But the Scripture commands us to do it more frequently, and it commands us to do it constantly. So we're always being reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf giving himself, himself to save us from our sin. And so they would never cease to remember what Jesus had done for them. And the last part of verse 42 says they were devoted to the prayers. Now again, this is foundational to them. Right? So it, before Peter start, stands up to preach, there's 120 of them. Now, the population in the world at that time wasn't near what it is today, but it was still a lot more than 120. There were 120 confessing Christians. After Peter preach, preaches, there's over 3,000. But they're still greatly, greatly behind the eight ball in terms of numbers. And there were a lot of people who hated the message of Christ. There were a lot of people who still wanted to destroy the church. How do we know that? Because a few chapters after this, we see Saul leading that charge, putting Christians to death, seeing the church persecuted. We also know that God would do what he does, and he would take the 
greatest threat to the church in Saul, and he would make him the church's greatest missionary. But that's not here yet. They desperately needed prayer. They, they prayed fervently. They prayed for strength. They prayed for commitment. They prayed for safety. They prayed for faithfulness. And they knew that their strength for faithfulness comes only from Him, from Christ, from the Holy Spirit living within them. And again, the kicker is this, that, that in this context of gathered worship, they were doing life together. They weren't living in isolation. They weren't living in such a way that they might show up occasionally to a gathering and then go on about their own business and not know what anybody is going through throughout the rest of the week or the month. They were a family. I mean, it would be kind of odd if I never knew what Allison was up to or what Allison was going through in life, right? We have to be in contact with each other to know, like, what's going on? How are you doing? Right? We need to know those things. There's a reason that we constantly see Jesus, through the working of Scripture, showing how marriage is such a picture of our relationship to Christ and His church. We need one another desperately. We're not meant to be alone. And so true Christians are devoted Christians. We're devoted to the Word. We're devoted to fellowship. We're devoted to the breaking of bread. We're devoted to prayer. And maybe you're sitting here and you're, you're kind of fighting this a little bit internally and you're like, I'm not really all that devoted. And you might be asking, man, am I even truly a Christian? Maybe it's time to get real and turn to Christ. Maybe it's time to turn to Christ and say, you know what, I've been playing a game for a long time. I've called myself a Christian and I've associated myself with Christianity and I've attended, to ch- I've attended church on occasion, but I've never truly surrendered my life to Jesus. Maybe it's time to do that. You know, today is not only Mother's Day for us, but it's mine and Allison's anniversary. And what that reminds me of is how quickly time flies. I mean, you always hear when you're little, older adults say, you know, the older you get, the faster it goes. Well, the older I get, the more I'm understanding that it's going faster and faster and faster. And I kind of wish it would slow down just a little. Life is short. Life is precious. We're not promised a lot of time. We're not promised any time. And so I guess we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing with the time we have? Have Have I really given my life to Jesus? Because to be completely honest, you don't know if you're going to have another opportunity or not. I'm sure every one of us has some type of plans for lunch today. Do you know the reality is, is that you may never make it there. We don't know. We don't know. We know that 
all of us will stand before God. We don't know when. And so I would plead with you to make sure, like my old youth pastor used to tell me, make sure that you know that you know that you know that you have it right with Christ. But true Christians are devoted Christians. If there's not a lot of devotion to Christ in your life, there might not be a Christ in your life. Not the Christ. So turn to Him. But as we move forward in these verses, we see that not only are Christians devoted, but that devoted Christians live in biblical community. When Christians are devoted to Jesus and they're devoted to Jesus' church, we see some very striking results. The first thing we see here is that God works mirac- worked miraculously through them. Look at verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now this type of work was given specifically for the apostles, though that were personally called by Jesus. There are a lot of people today that claim to be apostles. They're not. They might have the gift of apostleship and leading and pastoring, but they're not apostles. Okay? And, and I don't care if you disagree with me or not. That's the reality. Okay? And so this specific gift was given to them. And maybe you're like, well, what about Paul? Jesus was already dead. Jesus appeared to Paul. Threw him off a donkey. Threw him on his honey. And he went from being a terrorist, a terrorist to a missionary. Only God can make that change in somebody. But even though this gift was given specifically to them, and they're dead and gone, it doesn't mean that God doesn't still work. He just works differently. He still works miraculous ways. He still does amazing things. Just a little differently. God still saves people. He still restores people. He still restores relationships. He is still building His church. He still works in us to love each other. Those are miraculous things. It is a work of God to see God's church happen. For those of you who have been around here for any time, you know that. You've seen it here. That God would call us to start a church and that nine years later, almost nine years, we're still here and fairly healthy. That's a miraculous work of God. For any of us to be able to raise our hands and say we have truly trusted in the saving work of Jesus and that our lives have been redeemed by the blood of a lamb is miraculous. Because it's not of our own doing. It is the gift of God. God works miraculously. And in them, He was doing miraculous works. Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were devoted to unity. Why? Because they had been brought together by the gospel. Some of you have heard this before, but I want to read you a quote from D.A. Carson. He's a pastor, theologian. It's not on here because it's extremely long. I started typing it and I realized it was going to be like 10 pages on there. And I was 
just didn't want to do that because I know y'all probably didn't want to read 10 pages, so I want to read it to you. This is a quote from D.A. Carson talking about this specific thing. He says, I suspect that one of the reasons why there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because this is not an easy thing to do. Many fellow Christians will appear to be, at least initially or to the immature, little enemies. To put the matter differently, if Christians love Christians, it is not exactly the same thing as what Jesus has in mind when he speaks rather dismissively of tax collectors loving tax collectors and pagans loving pagans. What he means in these latter cases is that most people have their own little circle of in people, their own little list of compatible people, their friends. But Christian love, he says, must go beyond that to include people outside the group. The objects of our love must include those who are not in. It must include enemies. Ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. And what bonds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. And in the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus Himself, they commit themselves to doing what He says, and He commands them to love one another. In light of this, They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Not all of us are the same in here. We don't all have the same likes and dislikes. We don't all come from the same backgrounds. We don't all have the same purposes in life. We don't all agree. But we're bound together by one thing, the good news of Jesus. And that last line, that we are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake, is a picture of biblical community. They've been brought together. We have been brought together by the gospel of Jesus. It goes on in verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In other words, they were living for the good of others instead of themselves. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. You know that when I say I'm not going to do that, I wind up doing it, but I'm not. I'm just going to read verse 10. It says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. The needs of others become greater than the wants of ourselves. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. 
the devoted people of God worshiped together and they gathered together. They gathered for worship and they gathered with each other in homes. Life for them was meant to be lived in unison. It was not a Sunday faith for these brothers and sisters. It was every day gathering together. Being with their faith family was a lifeline for them. They needed one another greatly. Do we do this? Do we worship in this way? Or do we look more forward to gathering or doing other things more than we do gathering together with our faith family? That's a hard one, isn't it? Because I'm sure all of us would want to say yeah. But there are just times where we just don't want to. You know, I would encourage you that that's the times that we need each other the most. When we're tempted to to do our own thing, instead of gathering together with the brothers and sisters that God has put into our life, we need each other greatly. They were known as hospitable people. Their homes, their, their lives were always open. See, our schedules and our routines should never be so sealed so tightly that we can't make room for hospitality. You know that most of us probably have such a detailed life that if Jesus himself wanted to come for dinner, we couldn't make time for it. And I know we laugh and we chuckle about that, but that's legit. That's real. That we're so, we we want to do our thing and, and we have our busy schedules and I get it, man. I don't know if I have breathed in the last three months. Spring is always like the busiest season of our life, and we've added softball onto that. And who knew that six-year-olds could be involved in softball six days a week? But it happens. That's just life. And I think the challenge is, is for us to understand how hospitable God has been to us through Christ that we learn to be hospitable in every moment of life. That sometimes we just want that dinner together. Maybe we should bring somebody to that table with us. I got to move. Verse 47, the first part. And they were praising God and having favor with all people. These Christians were setting an example of praising God together by living lives of God-glorifying character. Part of that is because they were together all the time and they fueled one another. They kept each other accountable. They prayed for one another. They worshiped together. They were living life in one direction. And in doing that, they reflected Jesus. And you may ask, well, what does that have to do with biblical community? Everything. Again, it's accountability. It's, it's life, doing life together. It's a lot easier to do 
something the right way when you have people coming alongside of you encouraging you to do it the right way. It's a lot easier to be committed to reading the Word when you're in a group of people who are reading the Word together. It's a lot easier to walk when you're not walking alone. Devoted Christians are brought together by the gospel of Jesus and live life together for the glory of God. And I want you to see this as we get ready to close, that living in biblical community brings revival. Verse 47, the last part. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what happens when the church makes this shift? When we actually begin to live the way that God intended for us to live. When our lives are actually molded by the good news of Jesus, by the hospitality of Jesus, by the love of Jesus, by the grace of Jesus. What happens? Revival happens. What is true revival? That's one of the most abused words in the Christian language. It's not a planned event. It's not a scheduled thing. Uh, We live in the South where churches have spring and fall revival. And really, it's just a weekly gathering where we come and we preach and we worship, right? And God honors that, but that's not revival. That's a gathering. A revival is a supernatural change in the hearts and lives that can only be explained as a work of God. If you're a history person, you might be aware of this. If you're not a history person, I encourage you to be one for a season. Go and study the great awakenings that have happened in the world. The great revivals that have happened throughout history. They didn't schedule a meeting and all of a sudden things happened. They sought the Lord in prayer. They proclaimed the gospel. And things just happened that were not explainable. That's revival. And when I say things that are happening that are not explainable, I'm talking about people keep coming back to hear preaching. Right? To hear the word of God proclaimed and their lives all of a sudden are different. They're living for the glory of God. And people who are shy are all of a sudden preaching. And they're telling people the good news of Jesus. And people that are loners are all of a sudden filling their homes with other people. And people that just don't like anybody all of a sudden love everybody. Only God can do that. That's true revival. And when the good news of Jesus overtakes us, And when we begin to live in biblical community, man, people get saved. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Revival comes. You know, and we may look at our lives and ask why these things aren't necessarily happening for us. And when we do that, maybe we should ask the hard question of why. Am I truly living a life devoted to Jesus and his church? Am I seeing people getting saved? Am I living in such a way that people know that I love the Lord? Is my life set ablaze by the gospel of Christ? Because the truth is this, that when, we, when the people of God live for the glory of God, He will honor the work in His sovereign time. 
Now, here's what I don't want you to think, that when you leave here, you can go and you can start preaching the gospel and all of a sudden thousands of people are going to get saved. It might not happen. You know, some of the greatest missionaries of our time, I believe it was Adoniram Judson, he preached for like seven years. In a, like he moved himself, his family, to a people who spoke no English. He adopted their culture. He loved them. He gave everything for them. And for seven years, he didn't see the first person come to faith. And there were a lot of tragic things that happened in his life, but he didn't stop. And then all of a sudden, God blew that thing up. And thousands became followers of Christ. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian. One of the fathers of the first great awakening in America. He preached and he preached and he was hated for it. And he went through some serious stuff. I think he had 12 or 13 children. Only one of them lived. And God used him. And from my understanding, he wasn't even like a dynamic preacher. He was pretty boring to listen to. But God used him on the heels of, of, of the prayers of a bunch of people to spark a great awakening in our country. It's not going to be easy, and it might not happen right now. It could. But I want to encourage you to press on and press into Christ. Be faithful. And in his sovereign time, he will do the work. Because if there's anything that you haven't gotten in the last nine years, it's this. God will save his people when it's time. He wants us to be faithful to the call that he has set for us. So if we want to see transformation, if we want to see revival happen in our personal lives, in, in our families, in our community, in our church, we must devote ourselves to Jesus and his mission. Remember, Jeremiah 29, 7. Not 11, 7. I'm going to read it. It's on the screen. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That word welfare in the Hebrew is actually the word shalom, which means peace. You seek the peace of where God has sent you. And you pray to the Lord on its behalf. And in its peace, you will find your peace. In seeking our city, our community's peace, we will find our peace. By being devoted to Christ and His church and living for His glory. We live through the gospel and we live in community for the glory of God and for the good of his people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you have shown us in Christ and for calling us into this family. This collection of natural enemies bound together by the blood of Jesus. God, we ask that you would see transformation happen in our lives, that you would work through your Holy Spirit to change us, for some to save us, for some to refocus us. 
so that we would be brought together to live arm in arm for the mission of God, to see others come to know you. For the glory of your name, it's in Jesus we pray, amen.